Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Calling Tau City, turn on your radio. I know we had some words last time, but that was so long ago. I got your message. It was a little harsh, you know. It's still a little hard for me to hear. Please take it slow. Welcome to Starship Sofa, part of the District of Wonders network, featuring tales to terrify and far-fetched fables. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. This is the Starship Sova, everybody. Welcome. Hello and welcome to show 500 and bloody 90, man. Come on, 590 times I've been sitting down here. Oh, man, I tell you what's coming in today's show. First up is White Dust by Nathan Hillstrom, which was first published in Asimov Science Fiction, January 2016. And as this is the end of the month, we have Mr. G.A.G. Campanella with his science news. That's all coming into your show. I do hope you will stick around and enjoy it. So yes, our main fiction today is White Dust by Nathan Hillstrom. Like I mentioned, first published, Asimov's No Doubt, or would you believe, in January 2016. Nathan had a first career as a technologist on Wall Street and now lives and writes in the beautiful Southern California. His stories have appeared in Asimov, Interzone, Outlet Springs and elsewhere. Nathan is a graduate of the 2015 Clarier's Writers Workshop and tweets frequently from, and there's a little... Twitter there, Nathan Hillstrom. There you go. This story is narrated by Nicola Seaton Clark. Nicola, originally from South Africa, where she grew up in various small towns around the country, working as a professional actress full time for 25 years. She has also spent the time being firstly a jazz singer, waitress, a bartender, and English trainer. Currently, she runs her voiceover company Off Simmer with her actor husband Peter and spends a spare time, spare time attempting to raise children in a decent human beings and attending heavy metal concerts. Rock, man. And, man, you know, man, you know Nicola is the voice of the host of Farfetch'd Fables as well. So, the Starship Sova is very proud to present... White Dust by Nathan Hillstrom Marjorie tapped her fingers against the wall screen, waiting for it to engage. Blobs of colour burped up from the deep, floated to the surface, and faded. They were large at first, single shapes of grey and lavender and pink, but shrank as their frequency increased. 
They became fast, numerous, hundreds of blobs, then thousands, resolving into larger shapes and colours. The image sharpened, and a familiar room appeared, its walls a triangular tessellation, the concave interior of a dome. Rubber tubing snaked across the floor, cabinets disgorged tools, and machined parts confused every open surface. Marjorie sighed. She would have to run a dedicated pick-up-and-put-away operation soon, not the most glamorous suicide mission. Corporal Sam Britton lay on a matte black slab towards the rear of the room, naked and rubbing the side of his head. He should be up and moving by now. The screen would have engaged after sensing his motion, and the image took several seconds to render. Plenty of time. Corporal, Marjorie said, speaking to him through the screen. Shielding is just behind you to your left. Patch zone is on the other side. Sam pivoted and slid off the slab. He stumbled and leaned back against the structure for balance. He straightened, walked to the supply case and laid his hand on a pile of the shielding material, quilted gold squares edged with solder. He drew a finger through the white dust that had settled on the stack, then gathered a load of squares under his arm. The heat guns are right there too, she said. She wasn't telling him anything new. He had just trained in a room arranged as a mock-up of the remote location. But he was slow, hesitant, not his usual efficient self. They had only minutes to complete this run. He wrapped his fingers around a heat gun, cradled the moulded plastic, but then let go and drew back. He turned to the screen. Dr. Ali? Yes, Corporal? There's been a mistake. Her eyes scanned the room. Equipment, patch area, slab device, but failed to see anything out of the ordinary. I'm sorry? He walked towards the screen. His speed effervesced the display image. The blobs became visible and frenetic again until they caught up with his motion. The image recrystallized and he stood in front of her, uncertain green eyes meeting her own. She could already see the blush of radiation burn edging its way across his skin. Corporal, everything looks fine. Please report. It's not, no, it just, there's a mistake. He ran spread fingers through his hair. His hand stopped at the top of his head and held on as though he were a ball he didn't want to drop. I don't understand. I'm supposed to go see Sissy. You know, Clara's daughter, our daughter, she's, she's performing tomorrow, I promised. Corporal, you need to get working, right? I, I booked a car for tonight, but, but I, I won't even be there. Tears welled in his eyes. They'll be so disappointed. The radiation burns were deepening, some of his skin curling and peeling. Corporal Britton, we trained for this. She allowed rising anger to harden her expression. Remember your training. Her directorate was going to be suspicious if she bungled this. There was an institutional nervousness with situations they couldn't monitor. They had been especially on edge since reports that the Brazilians and Chinese had secured their own presence in the far remote. I'm... I'm not supposed to be here. Sam's hand slid to the back of his neck and tightened there. I'm, I'm sorry, I, I should have told you as soon as I woke up. There's some mistake. She jumped at a clanking of metal on metal. It was followed by a whoosh of air, and she realised it was on her side of the screen, just the climate control activating. Her local room was converted office space, unlike the lattice of fused ceramics that protected Corporal Britton from vacuum in the far remote, where he stared at her image on his own screen. His head tilted as she collected herself. Sam, mindfulness. Perhaps anger was not the best approach. Getting things back under her control required dispassionate thinking. 
This was an interesting challenge. A thrill tingled along her skin as cooler air rolled into the room. Remember mindfulness. Recognize that you're having these thoughts, but let them float away and evaporate. Britain's brow furrowed. She knew he was trying to comply, struggling to clear his mind as they had practiced. That's right. Good. Now focus on what I'm saying. The repair shielding needs to go up. Focus on that. Do it now, soldier. He nodded and the muscles around his jaw tightened. He swung back into motion, the picture fuzzing again as he walked away. She put her index finger on the screen over the small of his back and traced down to his sinewy thighs. He was a well-built soldier, durable and athletic. She had been smart to select him for the repairs. The picture came into tighter focus as he paused and she saw a rivulet of brown and red running down the inside of his leg. She pulled her finger away. Corporal, let whatever you're thinking go. Only the shielding. She clenched her hand. Do it now. He nodded again, still facing away, and picked up the heat gun. He walked to the patch area. That whole section of the enclosure was hot, probably from a breach further inside the structure. He got his first square up and held a corner of the second against the wall, pressing into it with a heat gun until it adhered. They needed to finish this tactical shielding, make the area around the slab survivable, before they could start working towards the interior. The previous runs had finished most of the work. Lines of overlapping gold squares stretched across a wall shaped by triangles, and she had expected this run would complete it. But after Britain finished his fourth square, he turned and vomited, expelled thin mucus cut with strings of blood. After his sixth, he collapsed, gun clattering to the floor. Sam, that's good work. Can you do one more? Do one more, Sam. He pulled himself up, and bracing against the skeleton of tessellated triangles, adhered one corner of a seventh square, then slid back into a heap. She inhaled as she saw the lesions on his back and recognised the slackness in his form. He would be unconscious shortly, leaving another half-dozen squares undone. She blew a raspberry softly to herself and then stood at salute. Thank you, Corporal. She wasn't sure if he could hear her at first, but his head lolled back and bloodshot eyes found the screen, found her. You will be remembered as a patriot and a hero. His eyelids sank until each eye was just a thin crescent of red, and she broke her salute. She exited the control room, leaving the collapsed Sam and his dome behind on the screen, and entered the converted conference room that served as the local prep area. The centre table had been shoved to the wall to make space for a matte black slab, identical to its remote twin. An IV pole stood next to it, its shadow flickering along with one of the fluorescent tubes overhead. Sam Britton was propped up on the slab in his hospital gown, flipping through the pages of a comic. The anaesthesia had worn off. She walked up to him and slid the IV needle out of his arm. Dr. Ellie, is everything all right? She looked away. She wasn't technically a doctor, of course. That pretense was for its calming effect on the subject. Even the anaesthesia was not technically necessary. Drugs didn't carry over into the transfer, nor clothes, not even bruises or tattoos, but it helped with the psychology. If a replica of a soldier was going to appear millions of miles away, she had found, it was less jarring when his previous mental state had been unconsciousness. Doctor, how did I do? The worry in his voice reminded her of his confusion in the dome, his slow start to the run. That delay had already put her at risk. Well, she wanted to slap him. You were looking forward to seeing Sissy perform. Sissy? 
I didn't... Oh, shit. Shit. His lips pinched. You were worried about your social life. You didn't complete the job. We could lose the whole far remote if you don't pull it together. If one of the other nations realised that their location was not secure, they would launch a deniable attack. The site would have some sort of unexplained catastrophic failure and they'd be done. She'd be done. Fuck. He looked at his hands. I don't get it. She shook her head. You functioned so well the last few times. You drilled fine today. She liked that the unique nature of this assignment allowed her to operate without supervision. She liked being in total control for once, even though it made her higher-ups paranoid. She existed so deep within the bowels of the clandestine services that she was monitored at all times when away from the facility, she was sure. Still, she wouldn't mind one of her organization's actual psychologists hovering over her right now, offering advice. I must lack focus, Sam finally responded. I I'll work on that. But what changed? Are you putting family before country? Please be honest, those feelings would be natural. She relaxed the muscles around her eyes, tried to appear sympathetic. No, no, Doctor, I'm committed to country. I'd give my life for the cause, you know that. Sam was special ops. He had worked on secret projects before, proven his dedication and discretion. It was unusual to clear any soldier for something as sensitive as this assignment, of course, but here, a necessity. These remote transfers were not a job for a covert service agent like herself. Agents were trained to examine and manipulate a situation, not to patch walls in fatal conditions. She thought of her own director, imagined him and his flabby paunch naked on that remote slab, barking orders at her as ionising radiation flowed over him like sunburn. A smile crept across her face. I know you're committed, Sam, and you've been laying your life down for your country up there. You have. She tapped her lips as she thought. But something's changed. Maybe it's not me, you know, it's, it's not really me up there, is it? She frowned and locked eyes with him. It is you. It is exactly you. But it's just a copy, really. We train, I lie down here, and then I go home. Whatever's up there can't be me. The copy is exact. He thinks like you. In practice, he is you at the moment of transfer. You, Corporal Sam Britton. You need to perform in that environment. You yourself. If you feel like you won't have to do it, then the copy of you will fuck up every time. His thoughts are your thoughts, so he'll feel like he doesn't have to go through with it either. She clasped her hands together, interlocking fingers. That must be our problem. Okay, makes sense. I will focus. She tilted her head forward. It seemed unlikely that he would make progress outside her direction. Focus on what, Sam? Sam swallowed and glanced down. He held his comic rolled in his lap. The responsibility to guide fell to her indeed. She smiled. We need to get your head clear so you can personally perform. You! She slapped her hand on her leg. Let's do some mindfulness exercises and give this another try. The Negociants Manipulants, who provided alien technologies like the slab, were fiercely protective of intellectual property, trade secrets and proprietary manufacturing techniques. Sub-licensing agreements and redistribution covenants spelled out these requirements, they claimed, and were altogether outside their control. So, whenever a device came to the conclusion that it was being reverse-engineered, tampered with, recorded, subjected to excessive scrutiny or operated a hair beyond negotiated terms of service, 
it would respond by zapping itself and any human operators into a haze of ozone. Corporal Britton had just gone under, his eyes peaceful and vacant. Marjorie squatted beside him, positioning herself in front of the featureless silver panel that broke the slab's otherwise uniform black. She touched it and felt her hand catch, as though invisible fingers had just wrapped around her own. Pushing against the force, she traced out a password of gestures with her fingers. She swirled, stroked, and prodded her way through the memorized designs. The patterns felt strange and obscene to her, as if they were engineered for the touch of tentacles, pseudopods, or perhaps for the slither of some appendages that had not been given a name. After losing a number of astronomically expensive devices like the slab to self-destruction, the Directorate had finally conceded to a policy of good-faith compliance. That included no monitoring or recording of relevant facilities. The device's tendency to vaporise agents along with themselves also kept teams small, especially for assignments like this one. There were only a handful of agents with the experience, clearance and temperament to run something as ethically nuanced as this project, and the Directorate liked to avoid concentrated risk. So she was alone, just her and the soldier. She drew the final curlicue of the password with its mandatory flourish, and the panel released her hand. It would snapshot in a few seconds, transmitting Sam's information to the remote location. She returned to the control room, and the connection was still engaged. The old Sam must have kept flopping around for long enough to keep it from blinking off. He was just a peeling mess now, though, and not moving at all. Sam's crumpled figure vanished in a familiar puff of white dust as the new Sam appeared on the slab. The slab did not permit local duplicates, but disposing of the older copy was part of its operational specification. As soon as a new Sam appeared, the older one was powderized. A thin layer of the dust had carpeted the dome, a reminder of missions past. The new Sam sat up and swung himself towards the monitor immediately. Doctor, this isn't right. Her shoulders slumped. Please, Sam, don't make me go through this again. So this is what we were just talking about, right? The same things went wrong with the last transfer? Nothing went wrong, she rolled her eyes. We need to get to work. But I was just there meditating with you. Sam stood and started to walk towards the screen. Marjorie shook her head, held up her palm flat to stop him. They did not have time for this. That wasn't you. She thought for a moment, calculated. You know the real Sam is in the room next to me. He froze. You don't need to worry about Clara or Sissy or anything. It's covered. It's good. We just need to get the job done. I'm a copy? Mindfulness, Sam. Just acknowledge the thought and let it go. But, but we were just in prep talking about the copy. She took a deep breath and pressed her hands to her temples. Sam, I don't get it. You're willing to die for our country. You know you're being copied for a critical mission. She squinted at him. Nothing is a surprise here. I don't get your problem. I honestly don't. He shivered. We, we train, I lie down on the slab, and then I go home. Every time. She laid her palms flat against the screen at shoulder width and leaned in until her face was almost touching the panel. Corporal Britain, you are special ops. A goddamn hero. We need you to man up to do your job. You signed up for this. He looked down at his palms. Stop talking to me like I'm... me. He turned his hands over and examined the backs. She felt herself redden. 
No soldier had the right to talk back to her like that. Her rank was just one level below director. But he held all the leverage here she had to adapt. Sam, I let you get complacent, that's on me, but we, we have to get this done. She failed to hide the tremble in her voice. This would look to her bosses like intentional stalling. Please, I'm on the line too. I'm sorry, Marjorie. He sat down cross-legged and let his face fall into his hands. He had never used her first name before. She continued to command and cajole him, but he just sat there, holding his face. She pleaded as his shoulders reddened, but he never once looked up. Then, for lack of sufficient motion, the screen flicked off. Marjorie shrieked. She slammed the display with her fist twice and fell against it. She rested her forehead against the black screen. This was a disaster. Whatever excuses she made about her lack of progress, her superiors would be convinced she was double-crossing them. She could be a saboteur on the Chinese payroll or, or playing to control the technology for herself. Neither of those would be unprecedented. The directorate was smart enough to know that its most trusted assets were also the ones that needed its closest scrutiny, and she was trusted deeply. She pushed herself upright and stormed back into the prep room where the corporal lay, still groggy from anaesthesia. He winced as she yanked the IV from his arm. She started shoving to get him off the slab. He held up his hands to placate her, blinking, and slid his legs over the opposite edge. Get out, she said. We're done for now. Can I ask? He was sobering up quickly. No! He stood and faced her from across the slab. Dr. Ali, please, I was thinking maybe... Maybe not knowing is part of my problem. Maybe I'd do better if I understood, you know, what was going on out there. Sam, you failed. You probably cost us the zone. If we lose the remote slab, we can only get back with conventional propulsion. Years! That'll take years! Think the territory will still be open then? Oh, go home. He straightened to full attention. I stand ready to take any action necessary. I'll step into a hail of bullets if that's what you needed. I'll step into a hail of bullets if that's what's needed. She glanced up, eyes catching the flicker of the fluorescent tube above and then back at Sam. All you need to do is leave, soldier. Now. His face went slack. Yes, ma'am. He glanced at the door to the control room. I just have to change. What, do you want privacy? I've seen you naked a dozen times. No, no, that's fine. He rose and began to untie his gown. She stared at him. Had you not figured that out? Did you think we were sending you to distant space in a hospital gown? He swallowed. No, I... Just get out. I need to think. Sam slipped out of his gown, folding it onto the conference table next to his pile of clothes. He grabbed his boxes and pressed car keys from the pile, bobbling under Marjorie's gaze as he pulled them on. She remained silent as he slid on his belt, yanked up his socks, buttoned his linen shirt, and shoved his feet into the hiking boots. She followed him to the door and swung it shut as he exited. He double-stepped to avoid being struck, one shirt tail still dangling over the back of his belt. Marjorie pulled herself onto the slab and sat, legs hanging over the edge. She had to work out a solution. She couldn't report back as things stood. The psychological situation almost made sense. After a number of runs, a subject would become 
complacent and used to routine making it more jarring for his copy. He would be, after all, the copy of a person who had gone through the exercise multiple times without incident. But her attempt to help the replica understand the situation was a disaster. Why had that backfired? She needed to better tease out the psychology, and quickly. She wrapped one hand around the edge of the slab. A tingle ran through her as she thought of one possibility to push her understanding ahead, though it was a little outside mission parameters. Marjorie thought of Sam, confused and awash in radiation, and had a panicked flash of the same thing happening to her. The fear was irrational. Still, she looked at her hand for a moment and then put her thumb in her mouth. She bit down. Wincing, she forced herself to bite harder until she tasted the metallic tang of blood. She took her thumb out and watched blood ooze to the surface and dribble over the knuckle. Ten seconds ago could have been a memory, could have been copied from somewhere. Hell, the universe might have been created ten seconds ago. How could she tell? But this was her present. She was here, now, definite and living in this sensation. She'd not even operated the device yet. She would never be a copy. A replica might remember this moment, but she was the one living it right now, tasting the blood of her thumb. A transfer posed no risk to her real self. She slid off the slab and prepped the device, contorting her hand through those alien swirls, and then laid herself flat on its black surface. She felt a tickle underneath her skin, something like the brush of moth wings, something delicate inside her, trying to escape. She held back nausea and waited for the fluttering to subside, then made her way to the control room. By the time she entered, the screen had already activated. A replica of her was sitting there in the dome, head lowered, legs dangling off the edge of the remote slab. Her copy slouched forward in a position that was unflattering to her nakedness, rolls of skin bunched up under her breasts and over her belly. She was staring at her thumb. Marjorie cleared her throat. <clears throat> so, what is it like? Her copy looked up, eyes wide, bordering on manic. I know the transfer was safe. I proved it wasn't a risk. I proved it. She lifted her hand. I just bit down on my thumb. I just experienced it, the pain. Marjorie shook her head and looked at her nude likeness with a tight smile. No, I'm sorry. You didn't experience that. I did. You just... Remember it. Her remote's eyes were blank, baffled. How is the thumb? The copy rotated her hand still in front of her. It's healed. It, it just healed. You were never hurt. Marjorie raised her own hand, bringing her thumb to the screen and wiping her index finger across the drying blood. That was me. You might also notice that you're naked and in a dome. Another clue for you. Her copy sat up straight and looked at her, eyes focusing. Marjorie recognised the intelligence in those eyes. She leaned in closer to the screen. So, what's it like out there? You fucker, the copy said. Oh, come on, you wouldn't exist if it wasn't for me, enough dramatics. You rationalising piece of shit! Her copy slid off the slab and stood. You know this is necessary as much as I do. We're working for a greater good. Her copy's eyes narrowed. Oh? Can you reconcile that with your enthusiasm? She crossed her arms. 
I know how you feel when you send Sam up here. I know you love the control, the ownership. I don't have to listen to this. Marjorie felt her chest pounding. You're a sadist. The copy leaned back, holding her chin up. You gravitated to where you could indulge your sickness. You wrap yourself in a cause and flush with your own virtue. It's disgusting. It's false. Marjorie's stomach clenched. You can't pretend this mission isn't vital. Want to waste your remaining time having a tantrum? Vital? The whole struggle is a sham. Idiots like Britain dying for corrupt countries. You know that at some level, but you're happy to leave it unexamined. The funny thing, it actually holds your career back. Think your directors don't know it's all a fraud? But you, you're just happy as long as you're exerting control. She gestured at her own nude form. I'm proof enough of that. The copy turned and shoved one of the cabinets. It toppled in a noisy explosion of metal on metal, tools sliding across the floor. She fanned away the dust raised by the impact, coughing into her hand, and moved towards the patching. Stop it, Marjorie shouted. You need to calm down. She couldn't let her doppelganger go on a rampage up there. There was too much she could damage, too much that it would be impossible to explain. And what are you going to do about it? The copy grabbed the partially adhered gold patch and ripped it off the wall, but then yelped and dropped the square. Marjorie could see that her fingers had been burned. There must be thermal heat leakage there as well. Okay, she called to her copy's back. Let's talk about why you believe I'm such a terrible person. I'll listen. She needed to buy time until radiation slowed the woman down. Her copy turned and glared. Good, you're doing better now, Marjorie said. But it's hard to keep your perspective up there. Her copy looked down at her burned hand, shook it out, cradled it in her other hand. After a moment, she jerked up, alert. A grin twitched at the edge of her mouth. Maybe not so hard as you think. What? Why are you looking at me like that? The copy walked back to the slab and squatted behind it, head and shoulders visible. From the motion of her shoulders, it was clear she was tracing something out on the slab's panel. Are you crazy? What are you doing? Sweat broke out on Marjorie's brow. That's not going to work, and it, it can't save you. It can only make another copy. She clapped her hands twice, trying to draw her replica's attention. It just, it just copies. Her duplicate stood up, holding out her fists, one badly burned, and extended both middle fingers. Then she pulled herself onto the slab and pressed her body flat against it. Marjorie rushed back to the prep room, beads of cold sweat running down her temples. She had no idea if the slabs could even copy in reverse, but she needed to snapshot again and wipe out her rogue duplicate. She strained against the invisible fingers, tracing out the patterns as fast as they would let her, and felt her hand release. She breathed relief as she prepared to climb onto the surface. Maybe, maybe there was still enough time. Marjorie appeared in the prep room, bathed in cool light and the flicker of a fluorescent tube. The slab was cold against her naked back. She let out a sigh. It had worked. She was back from the dome. She lifted her hand. The unbearable burning was gone, her skin smooth and unblemished. A cloud of white dust hung over the slab. It smelled of roast pork, but also of something like clover, a familiar scent that she couldn't quite place. As she slid off the slab, she saw her clothes in a jumble alongside the device. The scrub she'd put on that morning, her white sneakers, her security badge lying to the side. 
As she pulled the pieces of her doctor identity back on, dust settling on her shoulders like dandruff, she recognised the other scent hanging in the air and laughed. It was her shampoo. Marjorie walked back into the control room and up to the screen. She saw herself in the remote room, slumped and reddening. She held up her thumb to the screen, clear of any burns or bite marks. Hey, she called to her other self. We got her. Her remote self looked up, cracked lips spreading into a grin. Good for you. Me. Us. Her voice was tight with pain, but the tension around her eyes smoothed as she regained her posture. My own copy. Head shaking, she stood up. She gave Marjorie a wave with her uninjured hand before walking through the exit on the far wall, stretching her shoulders as she slipped beyond the screen's range. Marjorie waved back. Outside the limited protection of the dome, radiation would strip the life from her remote self within seconds. Marjorie remembered considering that option, up there, moments before she technically existed. It would have been better than dying slowly. She paced between the control room and prep area, then sat against the slab and began the same mindfulness exercises she'd gone through with Sam, collecting her own thoughts. She reflected on how much easier it was to accept being a copy, the third instance even, when no mortal danger was bearing down on her. But it wasn't just that, she realised. She had accepted her rightful place. She was the honest continuation of Marjorie. It was as though she'd gone up to the dome and come back. She had experienced it all. She was not, however, the original Marjorie that had sent her up to the dome. And she didn't want to be. She looked at her thumb, remembered again the metallic taste of blood she had never drawn. The dawning realisation up on that slab that the reality of her experience, the memory of experience, proved nothing. The source of the experience should have been irrelevant. The moment was gone and the memory was equally vivid for both, but one of them had not existed seconds before. She had not existed. That awareness had yawned open like a chasm, a darkness, a hand working its fingers into her entrails, pulling down, 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 all while the original just stood on the other side of the screen with her smug, shit-eating grin. No, she could never subject an innocent version of herself to that terror. She would never do that to anyone. She still had to deal with a far remote location, or she would be over even after all this, she doubted the higher-ups would take being a copy as any kind of defence. In one way, original Marjorie's plan had worked. She understood now why Sam had been breaking down. It wasn't that he was complacent with an assignment that never seemed to demand anything of the original. Sam himself would always make the ultimate sacrifice for his country, would never get soft, but his patriotism was tied up in his sense of self. When he started to think of himself as a just-created anonymous copy, as not Sam, it all fell apart. Her own patriotism had evaporated up there as well. There was liberty in the destruction of identity. A feeling of lightness came over her as she completed her meditations. She knew how she could push the productivity of this assignment to the next level, an innovation that was going to put her in very good stead with the directorate. She paged Corporal Britton to return to the lab. Sam arrived half an hour later, looking pensive. She put a hand on his shoulder. Sam... Sam, Sam, uh, I'm sorry about how I acted today. I was stressed out. You were right. I wasn't sharing enough information. 
She leaned in and put a hand on his shoulder. She needed his unconditional belief in the fiction she was about to deliver. It's just... I knew there was a better technology they weren't letting us use. It was... frustrating. Sam relaxed. That's all right, Doctor. Just part of the job. So I talked to my superiors. They finally authorised the purchase and upgrade to the slab device. Building this story for Sam brought her an immediate sense of peace. She was making things so much easier on him, was doing more than he would ever appreciate. Ma'am? It was honourable of you to volunteer for lethal missions, but it was taking a toll. The new solution is much better. She moistened her lips. This had to be absolutely convincing. We now have genuine teleportation. Teleportation? You, you're serious? Yes. We'll teleport you up, and I'll show you how to teleport back. It's dangerous, but survivable. And it'll always be you. He would be following her example in a sense, but framed in a way that would make him extremely effective. They would be able to run at least twice as many missions now, and probably more. The directorate loved results. Results won out over suspicions every time. She folded her hands and smiled at Sam. That's amazing. He squinted, not appearing entirely convinced. It is. I just tried it myself. His eyes widened. Wait, Dr. Ali, you went into space? That's right. That part almost felt like the truth. She had the memory, even though the version of her still in space was probably liquefying. I won't kid you, the radiation hurts. So, are you the first human to ever make a round trip to far space? He stepped back a little and shook his head. Sorry, Doctor, I I'm sure that's classified. No, no, that's okay. We need to be more open. And to the best of my knowledge, I may well be. She brushed her shoulder, wiping away residue from her original version. So, I could be the first man to ever do it? Well, let's just say the first male. <laughs> yes, of course, sure. He was beaming now, all white teeth in excitement. She had him, she could tell. And his performance was going to improve immediately. He would remember the room layouts, there would be no more tedious arranging of the mock-up area, and no nervous breakdowns. She wouldn't be sending any more copies to die in existential terror, not like the original Marjorie. And the old Marjorie's career really had been limited by her acceptance that the directorate was less corrupt than its competition. She had known... That was a lie at some level, but was too weak to accept the truth. This Marjorie was not weak. Sam, you can't say a word about this technology. Nobody else knows we've acquired it. It came at substantial cost. She lowered her voice and leaned back in. Not ever. Not to anyone. If they are cleared to know, they'll already know. If she kept it private... The advantage gained through this fiction might be enough to get her elevated to director status herself. He nodded. I never talk. Also, the teleportation can result in a bit of smoke over the slab, sort of a, a white powder, but that's expected behaviour. That doesn't sound so bad. She squeezed his shoulder. No, it's not. Let's get started. There you go. Big, huge thank you to Nathan. Nathan, thank you so much. Lovely to have you on Starship Sova. That is indeed an honour. And Nicola, oh, just to hear that voice, just to hear that voice makes me 
Everything's okay in the world. There you go. <laughs> so next up. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Here's Mr. J.J. Campanella with his science news. And it did, Jim, catch us out. Greetings and welcome to this May 2019 Bureau News Update. I'm your host for this segment, Jim Campanella. Freaking out yet? I'm sure Tony Smith's first listen to this made him wonder whether I sent him the wrong file for inclusion into the uh, Starship sofa, but you're in the right place. I will eventually get to a couple of regular science update stories, but this first portion of the podcast is partially a review of a classic or what should be a classic, speculative fiction book in the 1980s, and some of the physics of martial arts, oddly enough. And I'll get to that soon enough. The book that I'm interested in is called The Far Arena by Richard Sapir. Sapir wrote several standalone SF novels, but he's probably most famous for co-authoring the Remo Williams Destroyer novels, and co-inventing the fictional martial art of Sinanju, along with Warren Murphy. Because these books are considered pulp novels written for the masses, and rather silly at times, he and Murphy, despite writing a myriad of other types of stories, have always been considered by many to be rather second-class compared to more quote-unquote serious genre authors. The Far Arena, despite being a bit dated in 1980s politics and science, is an extraordinary piece of writing by Sapir. It's not just an SF adventure story of sorts, but it's an amazing commentary on how humans really change very little, even as society itself changes and brings us to believe that we've advanced a great deal. The story begins at a secret oil prospecting site in the Arctic somewhere, The crew up there is led by geologist Lou McCartle, and they find a body frozen in the ice, under meters of ice, in fact. And because it's several meters down, the body has obviously been frozen in the Arctic for a very long time. Lou McCartle gets permission from his company, the oil company, to take charge of the body and leave the site and go down to Norway, to Oslo. Fortuitously, in Oslo, Lou simply intends to turn it over to the authorities, but he finds a Soviet cryonics expert, 
and Lou turns the body over to him. The cryonics expert does not believe that the body is ancient. He thinks he's just saving the life of one of Lou's oil crew who accidentally got frozen in the ice. The Soviet is able to revive the frozen body through his expertise, but he thinks that Lou is lying about where he found it. At any rate, who is this body? We're told in a flashback alternating between the modern world and the ancient world that the body in the ice is Lucius Aurelius Eugenianus, the greatest and most famous Roman gladiator of his age, who lived in about 70 AD at the time of Domitian, the Roman emperor. We eventually find out about Eugenie's life, his loves, the arena, Roman politics of his time, and why no historian knows his name, and eventually how he ended up frozen in the far north. I will give you no spoilers on these points, since Sapir did his homework and describes in wonderful historical detail the lost Roman world. But I will tell you about a martial arts concept that I learned years ago that was only reinforced by this reading. The idea is that there are only so many ways to hit, punch, or kick someone. I've learned this from my own sensei. And if you study martial arts over enough years and do not limit yourself, you begin to see this very thing. Whether you study Kung Fu or Judo or Savat or Jiu-Jitsu, there are themes that you will see over and over and over again, even though they may bear different names. Physics and proper form limit how you would apply an attack. Successful martial arts systems evolve to the point of efficiency. Forms that do not work are lost because the proponent of that form did not survive to teach it to others. I'm sure I'm not the first one to apply the concept of evolution to martial arts. People who do not perform martial arts often see the application of skill and a mastery of a martial art as almost mystical. And in fact, many martial artists perpetuate this myth. The idea of chi is not redirection of mystical body energy. The energy that you're redirecting and controlling is completely present and physical, and it takes someone years to master. I've seen my own teacher throwing someone over his shoulder while in the kneeling position and using no hands. However, this type of throw is no magic trick and requires complete understanding of the physics involving not just your own body, but how kinetic and potential energies are being reapplied to someone else to push them down and off balance. The primary art that I've learned is Japanese sword. But in reading what Sapir writes about Eugenie, the gladiator, I was excited by how weapons experts over the centuries have probably found common themes as well. Again, because physics and proper form and application force a group of practitioners to evolve their art in a certain direction. Here was the first point that I noted. At one point in the book, a fully revived Eugenie is in a hospital kitchen with the ancient language expert who is one of the few who can communicate with him. He notices one of the long kitchen knives on the wall and is entranced by it because it reminds him of the arms he used as a gladiator. Let me read Sapir's words to you. We were too late to be served food, and we went to the food-preparing area called a kitchen, in this Germanic language. It was on the lowest floor of the building. It had large boards for cutting and storage boxes, which preserved things through cold. 
And when I saw the knives hanging above the wooden workbench, I laughed. Olava wanted to know what was funny, and I climbed on the bench to reach a blade, which, barring the thin, smooth pommel, was one of the best-designed short swords I'd ever seen. Well-pointed for thrust, and sharp for blocking slash. I pressed the point into the wood. Flexible, too. Beyond belief, one would not find oneself holding a useless pommel with one's life ended at the crack of the blade. Not this one. And it was strong. You, Jenny, are you sure you were a gladiator? Olava asked. She prepared fruit and bread and cheese herself. Yes, why do you ask now? The way you handled that knife. You seemed unable to stick it far into the wood. You seemed, well, slow and weak. Have you lost your strength? I would say I'm almost up to my peak, not far off of it. But you move so slowly, with so little force. I put the blade horizontally into the wood. Yes, that's it. It seems so slow and lacking force. There's no force in it. It looks like no movement at all. It is deceiving, O Lava. Come, mark where the blade went in. Eugenie, sometimes the mind plays tricks. Perhaps you wish to be a gladiator, and after so many years in the ice, I don't know what happened to the mind, but perhaps you adopted some way of life that would be appealing to you. You were in a comatose state for a long while here in the hospital, and you are not all that muscular in truth. I looked at the blade. How did I know she was not right? I did not even know the difference between today and tomorrow, and yesterday, and centuries before. The thrust seemed good to me. I pulled out the blade. So what's so special about this scene? Olava's surprised that Eugenie does not get the knife deeper into the wood, and that he seems slow and weak. Eugenie never had any intention of getting that knife any deeper. He knew his job precisely. This is a principle that has been pounded into my head again and again. Real swords are horrendously sharp weapons. We've been taught by watching Conan and the Lord of the Rings movies that they need to be swung like axes with all our strength. And that's simply not true. You're talking about a three-foot-long razor blade, whether it belonged to a gladiator or a samurai. Sword movements do not need to be massive or obvious because the sword does most of the work. I actually got tendonitis in my shoulders a few years ago from swinging my own sword so hard that I hurt myself. Because of the pain I created with my bad form, I was forced to learn that because of physics, you only need to direct the sword. Gravity and correctly applied body mass do the rest. Eugenie knew this principle and only applied the force that was needed to know more. He was trained from childhood by a master lanista to understand this. The other scene in the book that I found fascinating was a short, very one-sided fight that Eugenie engages in in the modern world. Lou, the oil man, does not believe that Eugenie is actually a famous gladiator because he's only five feet tall and there are no writings about him in the ancient texts. Lou wants to manipulate him into hiding in a cabin in the woods for his oil company's benefit. However, the oil man needs to convince the Soviet doctor and Olava, the translator, that Eugenie is a fraud and should be removed from the spotlight. 
So Lou recruits a gold medal fencing champion to fight Eugenie and show him up as incompetent at fighting. Eugenie turns this down and kicks the fencer in the testicles. The angry fencer unfortunately finds Eugenie in that same kitchen after the former gladiator has found the kitchen knife. The fencer has removed the cap from his epee and nicks Eugenie on the cheek with it. All hell breaks loose at that point as Eugenie's trained reflexes cut in to protect himself. Here is Lou telling his boss, the head of the oil company, exactly what happened. Eugenie had appeared to move slowly. He caught the tip of the fencer's foil with the tip of the salad knife. And as though the two weapons were soldered, he moved it with the tip until everyone could see he was dominating and directing the fencer's foil. Like he would hold a two-year-old's hand and move it around that easily, said McArdle. Then Eugenie, who was half a foot shorter than the fencer, did the same thing with the two fingers on his left hand, while his knife teased the genitals of the fencer. No, Eugenie did not cut him there. Still with a big grin, he pushed his belly into the fencer's belly, then turned around so that the fencer's arm was under his own arm. He was showing the fencer how to move. He yelled into the fencer's ear that he should practice more, and he accused the fencer of not listening properly. Then he took one step back and took off an ear. So what do I find interesting about this scene? Well, again, I've heard this idea of being on top of your opponent's sword for years now in the Japanese form that I practice called Shinkageru, the new shadow school. It dates back to the 16th century of Japan. By having your sword on top of your opponents and applying the proper physical structure, you can control your opponent's sword. This is a subtle form and very hard to perform, but a master of the form can override even the biggest opponent, just as Eugenie does. Again, what fascinates me is the idea that even going back to Roman fighting styles 2,000 years ago, you will find common themes because there are only so many ways that a sword can be swung or stabbed. Again, I will reiterate my theme. Themes. First, Sapir writes an excellent story about a man out of time and his fate. We have seen this again and again in SF, but Sapir does a masterful job of writing both historical fiction and modern-day speculative stuff. Second, I contend that at a certain level, all martial arts ends up with parallel structure. I contend this because of the limitations of human physical nature. Okay, let's see if we can cover a couple of traditional science stories here before I quit for the evening. The first actual science story of the night is actually related in a weird way to the Farwarita novel and the science of cryonics. Antarctica is almost the last place on Earth you would expect to be teeming with life. Survival below the temperature at which water freezes should be impossible, especially for cold-blooded creatures that depend on their environment for warmth. But for the enterprising ice fish, Antarctica represents a bountiful place to live and evolve. The ice fish lineage dominates the modern southern ocean, and its members famously sport colorless blood, huge hearts, and pretty ample mitochondria. If you remember, the mitochondria is the powerhouse of the cell. Dr. H. William Dietrich III 
of Northeastern University and his colleagues investigated the genome that has led to the evolution of the extreme adaptation of these ice fish. Their work was published this month in Nature, Ecology, and Evolution. The group sequenced 30,773 protein-coding genes from the ice fish. When comparing this new genome with those of other bony fish, the researchers found 373 gene families that were larger than expected, and 346 gene families that looked too small, revealing ice fish-specific genetic quirks. Nearly 40% of these quirks appeared within the last 7 million years, which pretty much coincides with plummeting temperatures and the rising oxygen levels in the oceans surrounding Antarctica. And yes, this is changing now, but let's not go there. So, how many of these 719 gene families relate to adaptation to the world's coldest marine environment? Here's a really cool bit relating to the far arena. The production of antifreeze glycoproteins in cells prevents ice crystals from expanding and tearing tissues. That's why you can't just take an organism like a rat or a mouse, freeze it, and then expect it to be alive when you're done free of thawing it. So unsurprisingly, the ice fish have a respectable 23 of these antifreeze glycoprotein genes. Another piece of the ice fish adaptation puzzle is their huge number of mitochondria and polyunsaturated fats in their muscles. These are both present to counteract the effects of cold on the fish's metabolism and biological membranes. Mitochondria naturally produce small amounts of toxic molecules that can actually damage DNA. The high number of mitochondria and the polyunsaturated fat content of the ice fish tissues makes them extra sensitive to oxidative stress, and this shows in their genes. Ice fish have an expanded gene family that prevents oxidative damage. They have 3 to 33 extra copies of these oxidation-preventive genes present. Ice fish are also the only vertebrates to have two copies of the DNA glycosylase gene, which produces a protein that removes damaged pieces of DNA from the genome. Beyond the challenges of living in the cold, making their home so far south, ice fish experience the summer midnight sun and prolonged winter darkness. Day length guides the rhythm and expression of hundreds of genes through the circadian clock pathway. How do ice fish keep time when the sun is so unreliable? Well, their genomes suggest that they don't bother. The ice fish genome is missing many, not all, but missing a lot of the timekeeping uh, period genes, and the cryptochrome genes found in other fish. Apparently, such extreme fluctuations in day length made light-dependent timekeeping less useful to the fish as far as evolution was concerned, and the genes disappeared from the genome because there was no more selection upon them. Somehow, 10 to 14 million years ago, as Jeff Goldblum famously states, quote-unquote, life found a way, in this case, in the Antarctic. Although we have known about the peculiarities of ice fish since the earliest expeditions to the remote continent, we are just beginning to start understanding the complex genetic machinery underlying their physiology. The results of the NASA twin study has finally been completed after they've been analyzed for the last couple of years or so. Identical twins, U.S. astronauts Scott and Mark Kelly participated in the twin study, and it's provided rather unique results. 
With Scott living aboard the International Space Station for almost a year and Mark living in Arizona, the twins were studied by 10 teams of researchers in an effort to understand the impact that a year in space has on the human body. They did this by examining molecular and physiological traits that could be affected by that time in space. The results were published on April 11th in Science in a paper entitled The NASA Twin Study, a multidimensional analysis of a year-long human space flight. One of the main authors, Dr. Susan Bailey of Colorado State, said, quote, This is the most comprehensive view that we've ever had of the response of the human body to spaceflight, unquote. The teams of scientists studied the twins' physiology, memory abilities, gene expression changes, and more before, during, and after that year. They focused on any variations that could show how Scott's time in space affected him physically. Living in the environment in space is different in many ways, including confinement, isolation, and exposure to environmental stresses like microgravity, radiation, and noise. The team collected physiological, telomeric, transcriptomic, epigenetic, proteomic, metabolomic, immune, microbiomic, cardiovascular, vision-related, and other data over 25 months. After Scott entered space in March 2015, he took blood samples that were sent back to Earth. Sequencing the components of his blood showed the length of his telomeres changed during spaceflight, and then they changed again when he returned to Earth. Although the team had predicted that his telomeres would shorten while he was in space, they actually grew by 14%. However, within days after returning to Earth, those telomeres shrunk back to their pre-flight length. Several months later, some telomeres were even shorter. Shortened telomeres in general have been associated with aging and health risks like cardiovascular disease and cancer. Gene regulation changes were measured in both epigenetic and transcriptional data. The genes that were most frequently turned on or turned up were those involved in regulating the immune system. That suggests just what kind of stresses he was under. Also, in gut microbiome composition, body weight, carotid artery dimensions, and pre-papillary total retinal thickness. There are also changes noted in his gut microbiome composition, his body weight, and even the uh, total retinal thickness that he had. Scott's chromosomes also went through many structural changes with parts of the DNA being swapped, inverted, and even merged. Most of the changes Scott experienced in space reversed to his pre-flight state once he returned to Earth. However, there were some lasting changes. Roughly 9% of the genes that had changed activity when he was in space stayed that way. Six months after his return, his immune system was still altered, probably because of the level of stress. DNA repair changes were still upregulated, and some of his chromosomes were still rearranged. Tests of Scott's short-term memory and logic problems showed that his cognitive abilities declined from pre-flight levels. In addition, some factors were significantly affected by the stress of returning to Earth, like inflammation and uh, the immune response gene networks, as well as cognitive performance. The paper noted, quote, Although our understanding of the physiological and functional consequences 
of four to six month missions has increased greatly over the 18 years of continuous human presence on the International Space Station, there is almost no experience with spaceflight length greater than six months, unquote. All the studies being done because of missions to Mars that are planned for the near future. Those missions could last up to three years, and more long-term studies are necessary to understand the impact of longer durations in space on the human body. So here's the last story of the evening. Are we going to soon see the beginning of the end of pancreatic cancer, or at least maybe a better treatment on the horizon? New research found that the deletion of ataxia telangiectasia group D, ATDC, whose human homolog is upregulated in the majority of pancreatic cancer cases, completely prevents the development of tumors in mice. The work was published online just a couple of weeks ago in the journal Genes and Development in a paper entitled ATDC is Required for the Initiation of Crass-Induced Pancreatic Tumor Genesis. Lead author Dr. Diane Simeone of the Perlmutter Cancer Center said, quote, We found that deleting the ATDC gene in pancreatic cells resulted in one of the most profound blocks of pancreatic ductal adenocarcinoma, which faithfully mimics the human disease. We thought the deletion would slow cancer growth, not completely prevent it, unquote. Pancreatic ductal adenocarcinoma is an aggressive disease driven by the oncogene CRAS. The search for better treatment is especially urgent, says Simeone, given that pancreatic ductal adenocarcinoma has the worst prognosis of any major malignancy and is on track to become the second leading major cause of cancer-related death by 2030. The researchers from New York University School of Medicine and University of Michigan focused on acinar cells in the pancreas that secrete digestive juices into the small intestine, which can subject the tissue to low levels of damage. In response, the acinar cells have evolved to readily switch back into stem cell types resembling their high-growth ancestors, a feature that they share with pancreatic duct cells. Those cells are prone to become cancerous when they acquire random DNA changes, including those in the gene crafts that are known to drive aggressive growth in more than 90% of pancreatic cancers. In the current study, the researchers found that ATDC is required for crass-driven adenocarcinoma and its progression. Specifically, mutant crass and other genetic abnormalities induced aggressive pancreatic cancer 100% of the time in study mice when the ATDC gene was present, but in none of the same cancer-prone mice that lack this gene. That suggests that the mice lacking the gene are protected from developing pancreatic ductal adenocarcinoma. The findings, says Simeone, identify ATDC and several other genes that are signaling partners as potential targets in the design of new treatment approaches and prevention strategies for pancreatic cancer. Well, that's all from me for now. Read the far arena. Avoid going into space for long periods. Keep watching the skies, and I hope I've inspired some of you. Until next time, this is Jim Campanella. 
Always a pleasure, James. Always a pleasure. Thank you so much, indeedy. So there you go. Show 590. Tucked up and put to bed on this miserable day. I've got days off. It's been red hot all over the time when I've been at work. And then the days off, pouring down with rain. Oh, man, listen. Please come over and support me on Patreon. That would just be an honour and a privilege to have you over there. Make sure this it's just little starships over there. We've been going, don't know how many years. And we're going through the, the kind hearts out there who support me on Patreon and PayPal. It would be an honour if you'd come up and help me. Thank you. Until next week. Just like I say, good night from me. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network. Dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening. I don't get out much. I've barely left the ground. I'm tuning in to your transmissions. I'm waiting to be found. And I'm building rockets. Pointing them to the moon But the work is going slowly It won't get to you anytime soon Can you reach me? Is my signal getting through? Turn on your radio I want to talk to you This signal's going light speed By the time I get my say So far from here And at best I'm moving slow So I'm waiting on your call At home with nowhere to go Can you reach me? Is my signal getting through? Turn on your radio I want to talk to you I want to talk to you Myself on a radio wave, I might get to you someday. If books were rocket ships, I'd need only the will to fly. I'm still building word by word, and I'll get out there by and by. I'll get out there by and by. I'll get out there. I'll get out there by and by. I'll get out there by and by. I'll get out